Hello and welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. I'm Mr. Forster and I'm here with... Miss Yamanakis. And we're here to discuss the female characters in Othello. Yes, yeah, so this time uh, we thought we would give you a whole text question um, to have a look at because probably if you know from looking at the other podcasts, the majority of them are on extract-based yeah, questions. one on each so far, so hopefully we've covered a lot of ground in the play. Um, yeah, and I d- we don't know what your teachers will necessarily have said to you, but I know I say to my class, and Mr. Forster and I were talking about it just now, is that we think that generally speaking, given that you've only got 45 minutes in the exam, even though you've got your copy of the text in front of you, you are probably better off doing the passage-based question because you've got something concrete in front of you, you're going to engage with it in detail. Um, however, we don't want to restrict anyone, and if you know, you love Othello, and you know it inside out and back to front, and you maybe find the passage question a bit restrictive, um, and you like the look of the whole text question, yeah. um, then it's important, obviously, that you feel confident in being able to have a go at it. And one thing you can do, particularly for those of you gunning for those grade eights and nines, is have a couple of whole text questions up your sleeve. So if you're interested in female characters or race or the character of Othello, have a couple of things that you've thought about. And if they come up, have a go at them. But if not, do the extract. It can often be a nice way of doing it. But don't, don't feel kind of, you, know, you can make that decision. Absolutely. But I mean, even if you already know that you're probably going to go for the extract-based question, um, hopefully in this podcast there's going to be lots of stuff that could be very useful to you because we're going to be talking about the presentation of the female characters in Othello so obviously any extract that has Bianca, um, Desdemona or Emilia um, uh, would allow you to maybe you know have a couple of subtler little points that you could add in. And one of the top tips for those extract questions remember is trying to like take that moment that extract you're given and not see it as an unseen but see it as part of the fabric of the play so having an understanding of what these characters are like across the whole play will obviously really help yeah. Um, improve your analysis absolutely so for example um, if you listen to the um, Act 4 Scene 3 the Willow Scene podcast um, which obviously focuses on Amelia and Desdemona you might see that there's some overlap with some of the things that we talk about in this um, uh, podcast and also it's very useful to be clear about how those characters have been and behaved earlier on in the play particularly if there's been a significant change great well if you haven't downloaded the, the handout do go and click on the description of this episode where there should be a link um, to a OneDrive folder where you can access um, the handout. The handout has all the key vocabulary that we use today. It has um, Mr. Minas' wonderful thesis and the structure of the essay. There's also probably more notes on here that I think we're going to get through in 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, I got a bit carried away, so um, but that's suggestions. That's a really useful resource for you and your revision going back to um, looking at Desdemona, Amelia and Bianca. So what's the question? Okay, so the question um, on this occasion is how does Shakespeare present the female characters in Othello, which is quite broad and maybe broader than you would get. Yeah. But well, Sometimes, just to be aware, there are sometimes quite specific character questions mm. in the CIA. They can ask questions like to what extent is Iago solely responsible for the tragedy? You can get the quite specific ones, but this one, we, the reason we planned it is because hopefully it'll give you lots of ideas that even if this exact question doesn't come up, something on Desdemona or Amelia or Bianca might and Absolutely. you can use things that you learn in today's uh, or, or even indeed, if you're if you're writing about Iago and Othello, um, there are still obviously lots of things about the way that they talk about and behave towards the female yeah, characters in the play that are relevant. Yeah, very good. Well, do you want to start by saying, oh, it's easy, a thesis, whatever kind of essay, whether it's an extract or a whole text question, the Mark scheme for Cambridge, as indeed any good Mark scheme should do, really focuses on the personal interpretation. What what CIA want to hear from you is what's your argument? What is Shakespeare saying about female characters? What is the play saying about female characters? Um, and so that's what we're setting up in our thesis, that kind yeah. of overall thrust of the direction Absolutely. of our argument. And, and the thesis has a slightly different job to do, doesn't it, in the whole text question, because obviously in the passage you're, you're talking specifically about what 
what's happening at that moment. Whereas in um, a whole text question, you're having to make some slightly kind of broader and more general points. So um, here's the thesis statement for um, this question then. The world of Othello is ultimately a patriarchal one where masculine values are dominant. This is further intensified by the majority of the action taking place in Cyprus, a military outpost inhabited largely by soldiers. Othello himself is a valued and experienced general, but he has little experience of love, and this creates an environment in which the female characters lack agency, and one in which their voices are seldom heeded, even though they, unlike the men, speak the truth. The two key female characters, Desdemona and Amelia, are both articulate and honest, but are at the mercy of Iago's misogynistic Machiavellian scheming, and of a world in which they are the possessions of men. Well, some really interesting ideas here that we've been about. So clearly what we're going to be looking at in this essay is the kind of central idea of female characters lacking agency, so lacking the ability to make decisions for themselves, lacking control of their own destinies. Um, we're going to be looking at the, the, the lies of men and the truth spoken by women. And we're going to be looking at this kind of idea of this possession, this idea of women as yes, being possessions of men. Yes, which is right from the beginning. Yeah, really, in the metaphors it? that run through yeah. the whole of the play, this is a really key yeah. idea. So, I mean, just a small point, which is that, you know, and you wouldn't necessarily have to put this in the essay, but, um, you know, those of you who've studied Shakespeare plays lower down the school, so, for example, if you might have done The Merchant of Venice in Year 9, you will know that in other kinds of plays often particularly comedies, women do have a lot more agency um, and are able to act and change things. So think about Portia in The Merchant of Venice. Mm. She actually changes the outcome of the play. Um, so yes, let's get back to the Yes, but, but I guess the point that Simonos is making is that we shouldn't necessarily see this as typical of all of Shakespeare's yeah. plays, that actually these three women who totally lack any kind of power agency actually is, is, is specific to this play and the world yeah. of this play. And you tend to get it more in tragedies, um, yeah than in other... So one, when you're thinking about whole text question, one question students often ask is, well, how do I structure it? So again, 45-minute exam, you probably have time for about three main points, yeah. four if you're super quick. Um, but an obvious way to split a question like this, a question on women, is... There's three female characters in the play. Yeah. Do a paragraph. I mean, I hated about that because what well, is that too obvious? I thought actually 45 minutes in an exam, yeah. why not do it that way? And you could do the same with a theme question. So, for example, if you've got something about the theme of jealousy, actually splitting it by characters can work quite nicely. Yeah. So, so, I think um, uh, don't overthink the structure of your essay. Ultimately, you are writing in timed conditions, yeah. and the marks are for your interpretation and for your analysis, that close textual look at yeah. how Shakespeare creates meaning. Um, one last point before we get into the nuts and bolts of this essay. It is a whole text question. Um, in their training I did for Cambridge, they did say that they wouldn't expect the same level of textual detail on a whole text question as they would on an extract question. That doesn't mean you don't have to quote, um, but it means that you can paraphrase in a very short quotation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you still need to be engaged with the language, with the metaphors, with the imagery, but you don't always have to quote to the, the same extent as you would on an extract yeah. question. I, I also, just a couple more things quickly. I think... Um, it's probably worth, again, depending on the question, on choosing sort of two or three key moments that you're going to look at in a little bit more detail. You try, them, yeah, yeah you talk about everything. Play. The danger with this kind of question um, is that people just retell the story. You get a yeah. narrative recounting yeah. of what happens. There are many female characters in a fellow. So just be wary of that. Yeah. So the first paragraph we're going to be looking at is Desdemona and this transition from this active, outspoken figure who appears in the courts of, of, of yeah. Venice to someone who's entirely passive. I think sometimes we forget, particularly when we get to the end of play, actually how significant a change that is. Um, again, a little bit like um, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth, although, albeit differently, um, the Desdemona we get in Act 4 and 5 is very different to the Desdemona that we have at the beginning. Yeah, because in Act 1, Scene 3, the first time Shakespeare introduced us to Desdemona, um, she is 
proactive. She's come, she's in this masculine yes. world of the of, of the Venetian judicial and legal system. She's there speaking out for her husband. Absolutely, and, and bear in mind as well that she has kind of gone against everything that women are supposed to do. She has disobeyed her father. She has eloped um, with Othello, and yet she is quite happy to kind of come back and speak eloquently in front of her father and in front of the duke, um, and to state her case, which she does. And, and actually, in the, in the face of her father's kind of raw anger, she's very measured. Yes. What we see is, is someone who's very much in control of their language and in control of themselves, um, uh, which is very different from how women are talked about in that kind of opening scene. Yes, absolutely. I mean, we get that through um, uh, Iago, don't we? Um, and um, and Brabantio's reaction, which is the sense that Desdemona is a possession. Um, there's a quotation, um, look to your house, your daughter, and your bags. Um, yeah. You know, and she's part of that triplet, isn't she? She's just another one of um, Brabantio's possessions. Yeah, and, the, and there's the, and the Iago's disturbing metaphors as well. He describes her as a land carrack that's been yeah. boarded by pirates. She's a treasure ship. Then Othello is the pirate in this metaphor, um, equating her entirely with her father's wealth. Absolutely. And reducing her to another possession. And lots of references to winning as well, as though the woman is the prize if you win her, that occur um, throughout the play. I mean, I think there is one interesting thing um, about Act 1, Scene 3 that I was thinking about when I wrote this, which is, of course, she is very clear and very articulate, but the argument that she uses to Brabantio, where she says to him, well, actually, you know, now that I'm married to Othello... I owe the duty of loyalty to him, not to you. On the one hand, you could see that as sort of, you know, um, Desdemona having agency and um, doing what she wants to do. But in a way, she's sort of kind of turning on him the laws of the land, isn't she? Saying, well, you know, this is how it works in, in, in Jacobean England. Um, I was the possession of my father, and now I'm the possession of my husband. And so I guess in terms of what you've been writing in this paragraph, you're suggesting that although she seems an outspoken, eloquent woman, she's in no way really a proto-feminist. So a proto-feminist, no. so proto is that kind of a, a, a prefix suggesting an early form of coming before like a prototype so a proto-feminist is someone who before the kind of the, the feminist movements in Europe of, of the late 19th early 20th century that, that we might some people might argue that is there something proto-feminist going on in this play but actually I don't think Desdemona is because no. she, all she does is replace one patriarchal authority yes. for another she, she leaves her father behind only to accept the utter patriarchal authority of her husband. I think the other thing that, that's um, important in Act 1, Scene 3, before we move on, is the fact that she does ask to go to um, Cyprus with Othello. She says that I did love the more to live with him. And that's obviously important because... Um, because of the, you know, the, the plot of the tragedy, but um, also that, that would have been a very unusual and surprising thing to the audience, that you know, women don't go and fight wars with their husbands, they stay at home and wait for them to come back. Yeah, and it, and it perhaps sets up a thing that does run through the play, particularly the depiction of Amelia, of kind of female desire, that actually this is not simply an abstract love, this is a physical yeah. love. She wants to be with him, Absolutely. she wants to be present with him. they literally just got married and she um, doesn't want to stay behind without him. And I, I think there's, there is obviously more we can say about Act 2, but I feel really just in terms of time, we probably want to get onto that change, because the key thing yeah. really when talking about Desdemona is how does she change as the play goes on? So what, is, what happens to her in Act 4 and Act 5 then? I think, I mean, it, again, as pretty much everything in this play, which comes back to the, the engine of the whole play, which is Iago, and it is the, um, the uh, reaction to Iago's plotting. I think it's really the minute that she becomes part of that net, that she's enmeshed in Iago's plot um, to persuade Othello to give Cassio his job back, that's the point at which Othello's reactions to her start changing. And I think it's, I think it's when that's gap, when she's, she says, I can't remember the 
exact quotation, but she says something she understands, she understands the words, but not the tone or the meaning mm. behind them. So she doesn't understand the way that he's behaving. And there's a kind of gap in their communication there. Um, and so it's that point from Act Three onwards that she seems she becomes less and less articulate, and she's less and less able to communicate. And there's her, her naivety too that becomes increasingly yes. that, that when Amelia talks about um, this quite pragmatic view of the position of women in the world, she, she says, you know, um, would you be unfaithful for the world? And actually, um, she she wouldn't. Yeah. So so we have this view, a woman therefore who's who's almost too idealistic. To be, to be real. Um, yeah, and I, I think that is the case as well, because I think, again, if you look back to Act 1 and also um, the beginning of Act 2, where she's kind of sparring with Iago um, and making some quite, you know, risky jokes um, while they're waiting for a fellow's ship to land, that is a very different Desdemona. So it's, it, it's as though Shakespeare feels the need by the yeah. end of the play to turn her into this really quite idealistic and unrealistic character who is just a virtue really isn't and, she and the witty banter of act two scene one being replaced by in act five the this kind of these sticker mythic lines where she simply um if you listen to our last podcast on act five um scene two you'll see a bit more on this um where othello speaks over her she doesn't even get to complete a line of blank verse before her husband interrupts her speaks for yeah. her in these imperatives um and then she's reduced to this final point really she's saying kill me tomorrow let me live tonight she's yeah. these, these pathetic appeals um, and her last words as she's dying in a slightly unrealistic, I don't think Shakespeare understands how asphyxiation works, but um, <laughs> she comes back from this moment of death to say that uh, Othello's not to blame. Yes, absolutely. Her final act is, 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 is again, one, she dies under the patriarchal authority of her. Of yeah, her and I, I think the change is extreme. I think you'd be forgiven for perhaps, you know, saying that in those later um, scenes, she's, she's sort of turned into something else, hasn't she? She has become a victim in the way that she wasn't at the beginning. Which I think leads us quite nicely to our second paragraph. Actually, in your topic sentences, you want to really set up the overall shape of your argument. And Amelia, her function really is as, as, as a foil to this. Yeah. What is a foil? Well, well look, a foil is a character in a play who contrasts um, another character and therefore kind of highlights their characteristics. So um, particularly we see that in Act 4, Scene 3, um, with Amelia and Desdemona. Desdemona's innocence is, is really highlighted there. As you mentioned, the thing about, you know, she can't believe anyone has ever been unfaithful, um, whereas Amelia, um, who's much older, more experienced, has been married to Argo for quite a long time, is much more kind of pragmatic and realistic. So the two of them contrast each other in, their, in the ways in which they see the world and the way in which they see marriage. Um, yet at the same time, she is still vulnerable. So although actually, yes. um, uh, to our, so, so I think kind of what, what's really worth us kind of looking at is her role in Iago's plot. She's of course is a fundamental agent of Iago. Yeah. She's the one that steals the handkerchief that Desdemona loses and gives it to her husband. She's complicit. She, does, she doesn't take the chance to tell Desdemona of what's happening. She is the one that ca- could alter the direction of this tragedy. And of course she does, but but too late. In yeah, only I mean, that five. I think I've said somewhere in the notes that in in one version, I can't remember if it's the Kenneth Branagh one or one of the other film ones we watched. It, um, they really kind of play up the notion that the minute Amelia gives the handkerchief to Iago, she regrets it straight away um, because she has a sort of sense of what she's done. So she's talking between wanting to please him and then realizing that um, she probably shouldn't have done that. As you know, the handkerchief obviously is absolutely vital. Um, in the play as the one piece of concrete proof um, that a fellow sees and that convinces him that Desdemona's been unfaithful. 
Yeah, it's also obviously very important if you are writing um, about Amelia, um, either in the context of this essay or in a, um, an essay just on Amelia, to definitely say something about her speech at the end of Act 14.3, which is a really important one, isn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, in, in, you've put it on the handout, it's kind of strikingly similar to Charlotte's famous speech about the humanity of Jews in The Merchant of Venice, um, uh, in which she has this kind of powerful proto-feminist statement about what it means to be a woman in a world that is fundamentally patriarchal and misogynistic. She says, let husbands know their wives have sense like them. Um, it's, it breaks down this kind of binary opposition between men and women, showing that actually women are just like men. Yes. And this is quite, in the early modern society, this is quite a, a powerful statement um, that, that kind of challenges the hierarchy, the gender hierarchy of uh, Elizabethan society, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, in the context of that scene, Desdemona doesn't really seem to be listening to Amelia at that point. She's sort of in a world of her own, kind of foreshadowing what's about to happen. So that really is quite an impassioned plea to the audience, and I think is, you know, kind of Amelia's most significant moment in the play. I think perhaps the, the most poignant thing, therefore, about Amelia is that, like Desdemona, she is silenced. So one yes. thing to think about with the portrayal of women in the play is that Desdemona is smothered. So the man who in Act 1, Scene 3 uh, gives voice to her in front of the courts of Venice smothers her, takes away her voice. Um, and Amelia, just as she accuses her husband, is stabbed. Yes. Um, the, the deaths of the women are very important because they are acts of taking away the female voice. Yeah. And I think that's really something that's worth driving home, that actually, despite yes. their differences, despite the fact Absolutely. that Amelia's a follower of Desdemona, both women are silenced. And Iago, although he refuses to speak at the end of play, he's still there. Iago silences himself, having made a speech that he's chosen um, to end on. So I think that is really important. Um, I mean, also, you know, if we're talking, as we were about truth-telling, you know, Amelia tells Othello before the Willow scene that Desdemona definitely isn't unfaithful, and she tells him again... Um, in Act 5, Scene 2, by which point, obviously, it is too late. Um, and then, as you say, she's silenced by Iago. Should we look then at Bianca in the last few yes. podcast? Because if we are going to talk about the two main female characters in the play, Bianca's subplot has some really important parallels. Yes. And that's the kind of thing you could put in a topic sentence. I, I think that so. And it, it might be that you don't have as much to say about Bianca, but you can kind of weave in your, in your conversations um, about Bianca some other kind of strands that are to do with the way that women are treated in the play. I mean, the first point really is that obviously we, um, the critical consensus for hundreds of years has been that she is in fact a courtesan, a prostitute. And yet there is no textual evidence from her that she receives money from Cassio for sex. The only people that accuse her of being a courtesan are Cassio and Iago. So there, there is this kind of, obviously it, it certainly seems from the context of the play that that is kind of her role, but actually she seems to care about Cassio far more than a transactional yeah. relationship might seem I mean, in the play that's sort of spun, isn't it, as a kind of thing that happens with courtesans sometimes, that, you know, they, they fixate on one person with whom they fall in love, and that's not a transactional relationship in the same way. Although interestingly for Cassio, it actually very much is um, and, and you make the point then, though, that even if we do go along with Iago and Cassio's conception of her um, as a courtesan, that actually this is this, that there is something transactional in all female relationships. There's this, there's this parallel, isn't there, between Desdemona's virtue being her worth. She is a land character. She yes. is this prize, this treasure that Iago has kind of picked out in the first act, just as Bianca's sexuality is what defines her worth for Cassio. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting, which um, is in the handout as well, is this notion that, you know, when we see Iago attempting to persuade Cassio to talk in that way about Desdemona, 
he won't, he refuses. He just says she's a very fine lady or whatever mm. it is. When they're talking about um, Bianca, that's very different. So Cassio, who might initially appear not to be as misogynistic as Iago, in fact is perfectly happy to talk about Bianca in a derogatory and dismissive way and to use her both sexually but also to ask her to kind of copy the, you know, the... the patterns on the handkerchief as well. Entirely reinforces, doesn't it, that this is a, a, a way, a, a play in which that these patterns of male oppression and male silencing of women are repeated again and again. Yeah, because I think I say on the handout, you know, her social status exempts her from his chivalry. He saves that for Desdemona because she's a noble woman, but it's not there um, for Bianca. And I think then perhaps uh, just as we come to the end, there's, there's a really important parallel again between Cassio's dismissal of her as a bauble um, so a decorative yeah. jewel, something to be bought, something to be owned. And those very metaphors that Iago uses in Act One of, again, the idea of Desdemona as a treasure, a bag, a value, but a possession of, yeah. of her father and then her husband, that, 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 that we're seeing this parallel between women who are objectified and reduced to... to Object. Absolutely, and I think if you're going to have one quotation, and they says, well, you'd need more than one, but I think a really good one is it's there at the um, end of the Bianca bit in the handout, which is um, Amelia's comment in Act 3, Scene 2, where she um, uses the metaphor as men uh, of men as stomachs and women as food. They eat us hungrily, and when they're full, they belch us, which is deliberately very coarse, but I think is saying something quite important about the way that women are treated. It's, a, it's, a, it's a play in which... Bianca, first Bianca, and then Desdemona, and finally Amelia are each consumed um, uh, by men. Bianca is, of course, not killed, but she is entirely rejected and left yes. and, um, and, and manipulated and even blamed. And, um, and she, she also, of course, is part of um, Iago's machinations as well in the scene where she's set up um, and Othello thinks it's, he's speaking to Desdemona. Um, so they're all used in that. So I think this leads us really to our conclusion. And obviously, in a conclusion, you don't want to just repeat what you've already said, but you want to think about, well, what is Shakespeare then saying about women? What's his message? And I think the key thing really here, isn't it, is that it is, a tra- it is ultimately a, a, a tragedy of, of, of women. Like, what, what happens in the play is, you know, Othello is, he is perhaps the, we might see him as the tragic hero, the protagonist, but really it is women who are, who, who, who are silenced, who are, who lose any kind of sense of power or control or direction that they have. Yeah. Um, and that's what the play's really exploring. And, you know, some critics would argue that, you know, part of Othello's weakness is not just his sexual jealousy, but it's actually his inability to really understand the kind of feminine side of himself. He can do war, he can make decisions, but when it comes to trying to manage his feelings of of love and sexual jealousy, he's unable to do that. Um, Do you want to read the conclusion? Yeah. So Othello is the tragic protagonist of the play, but Amelia and Desdemona are also casualties of the tragedy and his inability to penetrate beyond the facade of honest Iago, even when told forcibly of Desdemona's innocence by Amelia, um, which reminds the audience of of women's lack of agency and voice. Desdemona's character undergoes a change from an outspoken and passionate woman, and by, an end of the, by the end of the play, she's become a sacrificial victim. Amelia is murdered for her honesty, and um, the revelation of, of Iago's actions, um, and Bianca becomes irrelevant and disappears from the action. The women in the play are defeated by Iago's scheming, but also by the patriarchal misogynistic world in which they exist. There is perhaps one final thought that I do like to go, if you want to throw out a curveball as well, which is, of course, the, the irony. In a play that it could be seen as a feminist play, critiquing the patriarchal world of early modern um, of, of early modern Europe, there is a final irony, which is that these female characters are all played by men. 
Yes. Ultimately, there are no female voices in the play because we do not have female actors until the late 17th century. Absolutely, and it's always worth remembering that. that and it's just a, a nice final point for your conclusion if something on women comes up, the irony that Amelia, this protofagate feminist role, is, is yes. ultimately spoken by a prepubescent yeah. boy. Because women are stage. not allowed to act <laughs> on stage. So on that note, thank you for listening.